Hello, everyone. A very quick one from me. It would be a massive help to us with our ambition to help as many recruiters as possible achieve their goals and also inspire the next generation to choose recruitment as a career if you hit that follow and subscribe button. If you're someone that prefers to learn in a visual way, we've also recently invested a lot in our video podcast experience. So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Hisham Azuz, and in this week's episode, it's taken from our recent live podcast event in Manchester on the 27th of April. So if you couldn't make it with us or you weren't able to grab tickets, you're going to be able to listen to the entirety of the conversation and what we discussed on the evening. Now, we discussed a number of things from business development and client acquisition strategies to how to build high-performing teams to 360 versus 180 models, how to make it a success in the US, and so much more. The audience also got involved and asked their questions, which you're also going to be able to hear. And it was a really fun evening. I always love going to Manchester. I love bringing recruiters together who are like-minded, who want to, you know, improve collaborate, share ideas so we can all collectively improve as an industry, which is what these events are all about. A massive thanks to our headline sponsor, Sourcewell, who enable us to make these events happen, and also our co-sponsors, Vincherry and OneUp Sales. You can learn more about them in the show notes. And for those of you that really want to make sure that you walk away with the tangibles, the key takeaways, we've even put together a key takeaways document for all of you to download and grab in the show notes as well. Our next live podcast event is going to be in London. This event sold out in four days. So if you really want to make sure that you get a ticket, then use the show notes to sign up and join our waiting list. So you will get access to buy tickets to the next event 24 hours before everybody else and when we make them available to everyone else. So if you really want to come to the next one, you enjoy what you hear and learn from today's episode, then make sure you join the waiting list. But enough from me, let's get to the event and the episode. Okay, cool. Hopefully that's okay. That's okay from good for you. Yeah. If we're quiet at the back, then hopefully there's three seats at the front as well. If anyone wants to sit at the front, a couple of seats on the side. But if you can hear us at the back, is that right? Let's go, bro. <laughs> awesome. So I'll just keep this short and sweet then. For those of you that don't know what Sourcewheel is, we are a sequencing and automation platform. So if after this evening you're inspired to look at different ways in which you can reach out to candidates or clients, then come and speak to anybody in the room that works in our business. But without further ado, I'll pass over to Hishem. Let's do it. You can get this evening started. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Thank you so much, mate. Sorry about that. Thanks everyone for bearing with. I know there's a lot of sitting down there. Sometimes we try and make these perfectly planned, but it doesn't fucking work. And I'll be honest. When it's in Manchester, there's always more carnage, I'm not gonna lie. So that's what I continue to learn. But hey, we're here to hopefully have some fun, learn, you know, learn from each other. So firstly, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate all your support. Really excited to be sitting down with Amber, Alex and Carl tonight. I'm gonna, you know, hopefully ask some good quality questions and how this is gonna go is for the first 20 or so minutes, I'm gonna hopefully ask some good questions, facilitate the conversation, but then we'll run around with a mic for those of you that wanna ask specific questions to either the people on the panel. We want all of you to, you know, be involved. There's nothing more annoying than attending something like this and things that you hoped are spoken about aren't. So hopefully Hopefully, you know, we can cover things that you're all interested in. I think today, obviously, we're going to be talking about how can we all win in 2023. And so some of the sort of key talking tracks that we're thinking about today is business development. Every single recruit I'm speaking to wants to know how they can get better jobs, better clients who are paying more money. Uh, we're also going to be talking about, you know, how can we build high performing teams? I think we've got some really good people in the seats today that can talk about that. And then also just overall recruitment business chat. 360 against 180, should we still be going into the US, these types of things. So hopefully all of you find it useful and valuable. Thank you for being here. But without further ado, let's put our hands together for Alex, Amber and Carl. Let's go. If uh, two of you sit here, one of you sits lone wolf over there. Carl, that's going to be you. Alex, there's a mic behind you. Don't want to sit on that maybe. Good start. All good? Do you want to maybe give it a little... Hello, one, two, test. Testing. 
We're on. I've always wanted to do this. Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sound okay at the back? Yeah? All right, cool. Let's get into it. So do you want to do just a quick intro? Obviously, you've all been on the podcast, but for those of you that you know, may not know who you are, Amber, I'll come to you first, do a quick intro, and then we'll go Alex, Carl, and then we'll, we'll kick off. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so I'm Amber. Um, I've been in recruitment for five years now. And in that time, have spent the entirety of that at the same agency. Um, but plot twist, actually quit that company last week. Um, <laughs> so I'm unemployed, the first unemployed guest Shim's ever had on the pod. <laughs> and I'm going to be starting on my own venture. So exciting. lots of exciting things to come. Watch Alex? Hello everyone, I'm Alex. I have been in recruitment since 2003, so I'm the old person on the panel. I built a business which I sold in 2016. I'm now a shareholder in another recruitment company, Strive. Yeah. No one else clapped, that's really... (laughs) Never mind. Um, I also have started investing in the recruitment and HR tech space, so I've got a couple of investments in that space. And yeah, that's me. Nice. Kyle? Hello, uh, I'm Kyle, sales director at This Is Prime. Are we going to get a room? There we go. And there was a few more there. You won. <laughs> um, so I'm Kyle, sales director at This Is Prime. Uh, we support predominantly tech companies in growing their sales teams, uh, but on a mission to change the perception of sales and make it a career of choice for all young people entering the industry. So that's me. Nice, cool. So let's get into it. Uh, I think. I'm going to start, Amber, by quoting you with something you shared with me. Sorry to put you straight on the spot. But look, most people that I've spoken to over the last couple of months would describe first quarter of this year as quite challenging, different um, and hard. But in preparation for this, these are Amber's thoughts and let's just sort of talk about it. So Amber shared with me, I don't personally think recruitment is harder in 2023. Complacency has increased, as has the amount of internal TA teams utilising job boards due to the recession. Talk to us about that thought process. Let's start there. I'm such a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is bloody hard at the minute. Like, that's just the reality. Mm. But having said that, complacency has also increased. Like, if I look at the majority of recruiters, we are kind of scrapping for companies that aren't necessarily... They have a good brand reputation. They have, like, for example, I work in the US. They have 401ks that are actually competitive or I just feel like a lot of us due to the recession are letting our guards down in terms of what we will accept from clients and we're focusing on maintenance versus growth a lot of the times with recruitment companies right now. Mm -hmm. Alex anything to add to Amber's thoughts on you know complacency over it being more challenging? Yeah the market is definitely tough at this moment in time and I think it's particularly tough for people who are coming into the market at this moment because they Mm. probably haven't seen the good times. Certainly someone who started in the last quarter or two is probably coming in and thinking, what on earth have I set myself up for? (laughs) Look, maintenance is important, as is growth. I think it's also just important to be able to embrace the suck a little bit and understand that you're going through a period where, yeah, things might be a bit shit at this moment in time. You're probably not going to be earning the commission that you wanted to be earning previously, but certainly, you know, good times will always be around the corner again within recruitment. Mm-hmm. So, Nice. Well, look, let's sort of build on that then. So, Carl, let me come to you and, and start this sort of initial part of this around, you know, business development. That, that typically when we talk about things being difficult, obviously the candidate side can always be a challenge. But typically what I'm hearing is, you know, clients are being hesitant. A number of accounts that people hope were making um, as many hires as they hoped aren't. Just the BD side tends to be difficult. So I guess let's just start high level, Carl, if we were to reflect on, you know, Q1. What have been from your side some of the, you know, most effective ways for you guys to maintain client acquisition, you know, maintain some of the the job flow that you hope for. What's been working for you guys in Q1 on on the BD client acquisition side? Let's just start there. Yeah, I think what's been working for us, and it's important to say, we kind of restructured our model towards the back end of last year. And we now have a dedicated business development team, which consists of 
SDRs, which I think is somewhat unusual maybe for recruitment businesses. So we've got a team of three people now that's core responsibility is all day looking to generate opportunities for recruiters or people in the business to then subsequently close and bring on roles. So that so far has been really working for us to have that dedicated focus and people that can become experts in creating opportunities. I think what's been really useful for us as well is the cold calling, just going back to basics, did some analysis of the clients that we've brought on within the last six months and 30% of them have originated from a cold call. So what was that percentage? 30%. 30%. Yeah. So I think for us, having the focus of people in the business, that's all that they do. And also just hitting the phones as well. Yeah. It's been quite effective for us. Cool. So let, let's just talk about this for a sec, because, you know, picking up the phone has become really not fucking sexy, basically, has it? You know, no one likes to do that. So, Amber, I'm going to bring it back to you. You know I was going to do this, didn't you? So for those of you that haven't listened to the podcast that me and Amber did, I think we even called it, like, you know, cold calling is dead or something clickbait like that. But anyway, preparation for this, Amber literally said to me, I've gone from, you know, not believing in cold calling to becoming a cold calling queen. So let's, you know, let's talk about if that's been effective for you, Carl, that's been effective for you. You know, a third of the job opportunities have come from that method. So let's talk about this. So I guess question for you, Amber, is, you know, you've had a bit of a shift of mindset. Talk to us about one. What did that actually look like? How did you go about that? Because people could benefit from that here. Yeah. Again, I'm a hypocrite, it's a <laughs> running theme. Um, but with multi-channel BD, I think naturally as, as salespeople and as recruiters, we focus on the parts of that that we're really good at. And that's the negative that I think I had. I love, I love cold emailing. Like I love really personalizing them and making them amazing. And I was getting really, really good responses from that but I also recognize that I need to look at other avenues as well and yeah like you said funnily enough I came on your podcast and was slating cold calling (laughs) saying that it's dead blah 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 but when in reality I was just shit (laughs) (laughs) I was terrible I'd spent all of this time educating myself and reading about and learning about cold emailing and you know personal branding on LinkedIn but quite honestly it terrified me like I hated especially for me working in in executive search in biotech these are ceos in america of like huge molecular biology companies they don't want to talk to me and i'm a sensitive person and it really knocked my confidence quite honestly like just being told to politely f off down the phone and for example i was telling you both like earlier that i made 260 dials yesterday and i got one person that picked up the phone wow and it's just like self-deprecating that that doesn't sound productive no it's not but then last week (laughs) i did Uh, I think it was 33 and I got two amazing BDs and now I've got like two VP roles from one of them. So I think what I've learned is just like focus on the things that scare you and and really try and better yourself because there are not a lot of recruiters at the moment that are picking up the phone. I think a lot of graduates especially are forgetting that this is a fucking sales job. Like, yes, there are other avenues that we can use, but you need to be doing everything all of them because they all marry so well because when I am doing the cold calls I'm then following up with a personalized like amazing email that's less than 70 words that's got a really good call to action so yeah I think as well when you look at the best recruiters are the people that recognize that you need to be constantly learning and evolving like I'm constantly calling myself a hypocrite because one (laughs) minute I think that I'm really good at something and the next minute I realize that actually you need a bit of work on that Mm. so yeah nice Alex, how do you feel about this, mate? You know, you've been in the game for a while. You're probably thinking these fucking lot. I told them, you know, <laughs> trying to drive this since 2003. Come full circle. What, you know, what are you seeing in, in Strive? You know, do you see similar numbers in terms of opportunities generated from cold calling? How do you feel about it? Firstly, that's really ageist. Sorry. So, <laughs> so fuck you, dude. Sorry, mate, sorry. Secondly, yeah, I think for me, it's all about data. So I'm like a massive data geek. And I think what you have to do is have a standardized way of doing something, which is effectively your mapped out process based around best practice for each aspect of your your prospecting. If you do that, I think that hit the nail on the head, what Amber was saying there. You can understand what's working and what isn't working. If you don't have a standardised way of of doing something, the problem is when you get results, it can happen for all sorts of reasons. If you have a standardised approach, it's really easy to be able to identify exactly what's working as you go through your sales funnel, depending upon what channel and um, how many touches you're making based upon different channels and, and approaches. I think... 
that gives you the ability to understand the different levers you have to pull depending upon market conditions. So talking about 230-odd calls leading to you know, your reach rate, I'm assuming, was really poor. Maybe previously you had a 10 15% reach rate. All of a sudden, your reach rate's gone down to 1%, 2%. So clearly, therefore, you can see that you're either going to have to increase the volume of your cold calling, or you need to look at that and say, well, are there other things that we can do from a root cause perspective, such as you know, the, your data quality? Maybe if we had better data quality, we'd be able to call more mobile numbers. Therefore, we need to look at our providers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's just about having a standardized approach where you can really analyze what you're doing on a granular level, both from a volume perspective, but also from a conversion flow perspective. Because if you're doing those calls and that's leading to an X rate reach rate, then you get, you know, what percentage of those calls that you do get through to, what percentage of those are positive versus negative. Once you get through to your positive calls, what percentage of those are leading to discos? Once you get to your discos, what percentage of those are leading to, you know, signed contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So by understanding that data, you can really start to hone in on what is and what isn't working. So previously, CV specs would have been amazing because in a buoyant market where everyone's fighting over candidates, you might be sending out CVs and getting a 15% reply rate. All of a sudden, that's dropped down to 5%. It gives you that ability to understand what's working and what isn't working. And then that kind of gives you the ability to be able to pull those levers to figure out what you should be doing moving forward. So obviously, it sounds like, I know we're going quite granular here, but obviously, it's, we're talking about cadences really, aren't we? I feel like. Yes. Can you put your hand up if you've heard this terminology cadences before? You know, what's that, would you say? Core of the room? So what, just to make this really clear here, because I think what, what's going on here, obviously, Carl, you recruit in, you know, the tech SaaS space, Southern Strive. Amber, I know you take a lot of learnings from different industries and then bring this into recruitment. So just in, Alex, you were just explaining there, just for like really lame and simple terms, you know, this word cadence, not everyone's heard it, standardised process, like what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? I've got an example that Amber's given me, but how would you describe it so everyone here will put their hand up and knows what that actually means? So your cadence is your sales process for prospecting. So if it's a multi-channel, multi-touch cadence, what you've typically got is, if you think about all your different routes to market, all your different channels, you've got phone, you've got sales emails, you've got CV specs, LinkedIn, social touches, voicemails, voice notes, LinkedIn emails, all those different avenues to prospect. What you do is you put that into a logical manner where you have a standardized approach where day one you do x day two you do y and you can have multiple touches on each day you prioritize those based upon their effectiveness so let's say you've typically got a two or three week cadence where you prospect 30 accounts and you follow the same pattern to prospect those accounts which should produce the best return on effort based upon the work that you do so if you're doing that consistently you can understand your sales funnel and you can say that based upon X, Y and Z, every two weeks that I run this cadence with a particular account, this is the likely return I'm going to get on that. And again, going back to that previous point, the Real Joy Source Whale is an example, great, great product, because what that does is it gives you the ability to analyse your cadence and understand exactly what's working and what isn't working so that you can constantly measure and optimise it. Cool. Does that help? Yeah? Cool. So... And then just to, you know, just tie this up and then we'll, we'll move on. Amber gave me an example. So Alex has, gave a really good um, example there, but Amber gave me a bit of an example because we prepared for this. So for example, the cadence that Amber shared with me was day one, personalized email and cold call. Uh, day two, in-mail and cold call. Day three, another email with a different personalized potential problem. Day five, LinkedIn post about business, et cetera, et cetera. Do you get what I mean? So what's really helpful, because look, all I do is speak to recruiters. You know, you have people go into the office like, you know, I'm going to do what's your day plan today Alex well 10 till 12 I'm gonna do BD right what the fuck does that mean do you know what I mean and this is where this this really helps you know what is the process that we're going to take our dream clients that we hope you know we could do some great work with through that journey and then because you have that journey you can recognize clearly mm-hmm. for you oh actually people were yeah affected with the cold and like, calling and yeah for me sorry to buy right. like last year I build like way past my goal like 750k right but then I got to the end of the year and I thought I don't have a single repeat client like this has all just been reactive BD and I can't keep this up so Mm. a cadence for me is enabled me to not just chase vacancies but chase businesses and that's been the biggest like mindset switch Mm. for me and it's just become so much easier since doing that so yeah 
Agree with nice. you. Okay, cool. Right, just to just keep it on the BD side for a second, curious. Carl, I'll come to you. How do we feel about, if you were to look at, again, Q1, how you, uh, the types of companies and, and work you've been doing, how have you been finding, you know, just doing contingent, exclusive, retained? How's that played out for you guys in Q1? You know, everyone's saying, oh, I never, I'm never going to work contingent, I only work retained. Most people I speak to on the contingent hamster wheel, you know, what's that look like in terms of the products and services? Are you finding contingent is mainly how you work? Is it exclusive? Talk to us a bit about how that's played out. I would love to sit here and tell you and say it's all retained, exclusive. It's not. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is contingent. Um, a big thing that's been effective for us, though, has more so been exclusivity because that's at least given us a, some security of not missing out to competitors or other agencies. We have had some success sorry, with retained, so a bit of upfront commitment. We are still getting that but it's just harder to secure now because so many businesses are risk averse. So yeah, mixture of contingent, but exclusive has been a, a huge push for us as well. Alex, and you know, if you're looking at the data and stuff, what, how does it shape up in, in Strive in terms of you know, the different products and services? Well, we're definitely doing less retained than we were mm-hmm. based upon market conditions. I think sometimes people get a bit too fixated on contingent, exclusive, retained without looking at what the most important thing alongside that is, which is fill rate. So mm. I think you've got to understand your fill rates. And I think you've also got to then look at that from a volume perspective. Amazing if you can win retained business. But the reality is if you can't win it in enough volume to be able to then feed yourself or feed the business if you've got a BD function, I think you've got to be a little bit strategic with regards to that i don't think retained is always the right the right way to go and i think you can set yourself up to fail quite a lot with retained because if you're not 100 percent confident you're going to be able to fill that job within a certain time scale you probably shouldn't be taking you shouldn't be taking it on as retained business because you're going to dedicate loads of time and resource to a role that you're not going to fill you're going to piss the client off you've given certain reassurances and guarantees from a retained perspective so I just think you've got to be a little bit smart with that and you can't, you know, retained is great, but it's not the be all and end all. I think um, exclusive business can be fantastic because you don't necessarily have to die on your sword if you don't fill that job. Just quickly, your perspective, fill rates, what were you saying? What would you expect as like the gold standard that you'd always be aiming for? At Strive, 100% on every single job. Come on. (laughs) Okay, what is it? 13%? Uh, I hope not. (laughs) We're fucked. Now, what, um, what are we saying? Look, our, our retained rate is exceptionally high. Okay. And that's for a reason because we take on business which we know we're going to fill. Yeah. Because again, the problem is most of the time with a retained role, you're guaranteeing fill typically. So again, you can waste a lot of time and energy on roles if you're not going to fill them on retained because you've kind of made that pact with the client. Exclusive, our fill rates are also extremely high, but obviously not as good as retained. And then contingent, you know, I, I'm not a massive fan of contingent, but I think it depends upon the market and I think it depends upon the business model there are companies out there that absolutely smash it doing contingent Mm -hmm. so you know there's lots of different ways to to skin a cat and i think it is a little bit dependent upon the the market you work in and also your business model okay fair so just to bring in an audience question here i think it'd be a good time to ask it so we've spoken a lot about having a process cadences this is a question from Felix who basically said, when your pipeline dries up, how long do you continue to trust your same process before you try something new? Don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that 100% is all data-led because if your process worked previously, the key is that you should understand why your process worked. And that, you know, if you look at the two important bits around your sales funnel, there's the volume of things that you do, and then there's the conversion rate between each stage of the funnel. So if you understand what that is, you should have a good understanding of why your cadence works and why it doesn't work. When it starts going wrong, you should therefore be able to identify why it's going wrong. Mm. And that gives you the ability, I think, to pivot and make changes, which might be increasing volume, you know, but I think that's a bit of a lazy answer that a lot of managers use, just do more. I think it's it's helpful to understand that. If your conversion rate from disco to new logo or disco wait, wait, to proposal... You say, dis, you're saying disco like everyone understands. That's discovery. Just, so doing okay. a discovery call with a client. Okay, cool. No, I just, you know, I want to make sure everyone... Sure. Yeah, okay, sorry. So again, I just think it's data-led. If you understand how... like, I see it sometimes, and this is a little bit like sport. Some people who are just really good at something, they don't actually know how they do it. And you have these gifted recruiters and they just do stuff and it works. And that's amazing. But at the same time, I think as a, as a business, you really have to dig into that and figure out what that looks like and the reasons why something works. Mm. And then, yeah, I've kind of forgotten the question, but that that's gives right. you the ability. It's like, well, yeah, when should you, you know, change your process or whatever? Well, then the data will tell you. Let the yeah. data be your guide. And okay, I'll let the da- okay, cool. 
Did you want to add something? Yeah, sorry, did I look at you go to I think as well, like when I did manage a team, so for example, I'd suggest a new technique and then they come back to me and say, oh, this doesn't work, like I've been trying it for two weeks. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to change the entirety of that technique. It could just be a small aspect of that. So for example, if I'm talking about cold calling, it could be your opener, it could be your CTA. You don't need to completely flip the script it's a b testing right so pick a small part change Mm -hmm. that trial it for two weeks if it fails change it but you need it to be long enough to understand the flaws but short enough to not be wasting your time okay nice so i think i want to bring this in so alex i was looking at some of your posts you've really upped the the posting game mate which i know kudos to you good content and one of your posts, right, we have a lot of rhetorics in the room. And, you know, from what I see, it's a selling point that the company they're representing doesn't work to KPIs, right? Boom. <laughs> and you're talking about data, right? So your post, which I'm going to reference in, let's just talk about it for a sec. Recruiters, if you're not using KPIs to track and improve your performance, you're either really, really good or you just don't care anymore. So, you know, like maybe we've gone too far, the, like, you know, at, for me, I've been saying to people, okay, well, let's change the wording. It's about what is the science to be successful, you know? I think it's really useful for people to know what should the inputs look like rather than, no, we don't do KPIs, you know, we treat you like an adult, do what we do, we'll support you. So let's just talk about that for a sec because you're saying this is absolutely integral. You know, have we gone too far towards, yeah, fuck KPIs, we treat people like adults? Not believing in KPIs is like not believing in cause and effect because I think the key for me is that there's three types of metric. You've got activities, you've got objectives, and you've got results. If you want to achieve a certain result, you need to reverse engineer that back into the objectives you need to achieve which lead to that result. To get to those objectives, you need to do certain activities. And that's not just volume, right? Because I think people get fixated on the volume piece with KPIs as if it's just more, more, more. It's also about the quality of what you do. And if the quality isn't right, you won't have the necessary conversion rate going through your funnel. So if you break your metrics down into activities, objectives, results, you can reverse engineer that stuff and say, by the end of this quarter, I want to achieve X from a results perspective. That means I need to achieve certain objectives over the course of the quarter. And in turn, I need to feed into those objectives with certain activities. So it gives you the ability. It's kind of like a golden thread, right, between your metrics. I can look into the future and say, this week, if I do a certain number of activities and I do it to the right quality standards, that will lead me to a certain number of objectives, which in turn is my indicator of like whether I'm going to achieve my quarterly goal or not. So I just think it's, it's about understanding the science of your desk. Get that stuff right, you can look into the future, and then every week you say, look, I haven't achieved the objectives that I wanted to this week, so I'm going to have to change the inputs the following week if I'm going to catch up with regards to the objectives that I need to achieve, which again lead into the results. And then you combine that with time blocking, you can figure out how to manage your diary, you allocate tasks and objectives within that time span. And it's just a constant way of being able to evaluate what you're doing and where that's going to go. Because again, I think the key is that for me was always super motivational because I just knew this is what I've got to do, this is where that's going to go, and this is what that's going to lead to. So it just gave me such confidence that I was doing the right things. Mm. Without that, I'm just doing stuff and I don't know what the outcome's going to be. And that for me isn't motivationally good. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk about KPIs being no good, I think genuinely it's because people don't go into enough detail or, or be thoughtful enough about how KPIs lead to predictable outcomes. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So let, let's move this on to more, you know, you said about, Amber, you managing a team. Obviously, we're talking about the data that should lead to success. So, Kyle, I'm going to come to you on this one. So th- this was a question from Jacob, which I want your thoughts on, and then uh, either of you can jump in here. So question is, if a member of your team is putting in the effort, but the results aren't there, how long would you persevere with them for? Um, it's a tricky one, that, isn't it? Because the one thing that you ask of the people that you hire is that they do apply themselves, work hard, and put the effort in. And I think, first of all, I would go back to the beginning. If someone isn't performing but they're putting in the effort, I would probably look internally, first of all, and think, A, have we hired the right person? You know, we need to probably look at that process, first of all. And then, two, what's our onboarding and training like? Because if they're doing everything that we're asking but the results aren't coming, what do we need to be doing differently first? 
But to actually give an answer to the question, I would probably say three months, and that's probably a bit soft. Some people may be a bit more firm on that in terms of the results. Okay. Maybe Alex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say three months because you ask of people to put the effort in, and I feel like it's it's our job if they're doing that mm. to make sure they achieve it. So that would be my take. Thoughts, Alex? Yeah, you've got to identify the gap. So this is where you are currently. This is where I need you to be. And this is the time scale that we need to see some improvements. And I'm saying that in like a really matter-of-fact way, way, right? So it doesn't come across very compassionately. But I think the challenge from my experience is, like random example, you hire three people. Two of them are performing to like really good standards. And one of them is underperforming because they're just not picking it up quick enough. And they're not demonstrating the ability to assimilate information and then action it to get the required results. The challenge you've got there is you end up spending like 75% of your time with the person who's underperforming. And then what's the, well, 12.5% with the two people who actually are performing to a high standard and probably have a higher potential, to be quite frank, from an early perspective. So I think it, that, that could be death by a thousand cuts. And then before you know it, it's nine, 12 months down the line, that mm. person's still underperforming compared to the standard of high performance you have in your business. And they probably end up leaving anyway, because no one enjoys not being successful, right? So I think your time gets sucked into individuals. And this sounds really harsh, but it's kind of a question of maths. Where should I spend my coaching time? Should it be with the people who've got really high potential? Or should it be with those? Should I be spending a disproportionate amount of time with actually the people who've got the lowest potential? And, and my answer to that would be no. So I think you've got to allocate your time evenly between your people. And then the ones that aren't keeping up, you've just got to be really compassionate, but also pragmatic about it and identify where those gaps are and say, look, here's a timescale we're working to. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to support you, but this is what I need back from you. And these are the results we need to see based upon improving and getting better. And you know what? If that's not the case, maybe you know you, you should probably be thinking about where you can go, where you can be successful, because no one wants to be coming into work every day and feeling like it's not working for them. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I think, you know, sales is such a numerical and quantifiable driven realm. And sometimes, like, for example, with me, in my second year of recruitment, I was terrible and I almost got sacked. And I would have just loved for in that moment, rather than people just having a magnifying glass on my KPIs and the data, whilst that was helpful, for someone to just sit me down and be like, how are you? Like, how is this making you feel? Mm. Because it can be so draining. You know, we talk about having these programs processes and just going through those and rinsing and repeat and it can just get draining and especially now as we're approaching a recession it's really hard on your mind so I think not only looking at KPI gaps but like mental health gaps as well is is really important for me at least. So let's just continue this leadership conversation. A lot of people in the room who are either current leaders or aspiring leaders. I think look we had a ton of questions through around you know the typical managing that leadership journey along with your own performance. And I think, Amber, you, you shared some really interesting things in terms of, for you, it's always been about having really clear expectations. So did you want to just talk to us a bit about, you know, your journey with leadership? You gave me some really good examples of how you set the team up. Again, we're going a bit granular here, but I think it'd be helpful. Did you want to just talk a bit about, you know, why that clarity and clear expectations is important and what that actually looked like with, with your team? Yeah, um, so I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way and you know as an industry we talk about how difficult being a billing manager is mm. let alone a billing director and that's what I was and it was bloody hard like I did not have the time that I necessarily wanted to you know put into the team and so when I did you know set meetings for example just little things like actually following along with that because I'm sure we've all had managers in the past whereby they're like okay we're going to meet on a Monday we're going to go through your pipeline on a Wednesday we're going to have a peak and pit meeting on a Friday and none of it happens so just when you're saying things stick to it because that's going to create the trust and the honesty and that's then going to be reciprocated with how they feel about you so I think that's something that I really tried to adhere to 
and again just like trying to instill the traits into my team that I wanted so for example we did an exercise one day I think I told you about this and we thought about the three highest performing recruiters in our business and what traits they all had within them and what made them successful and then we kind of thought about okay what kinds of non-negotiables can we implement as a team to hold each other accountable and to try and instill the traits that these people have that we all openly look up to so yeah open communication actually sticking to your word and really reiterating your vision because as a leader I think it's so clear in our heads what our values and mission is but if you're not reiterating that constantly to your team how the heck are they ever going to want to follow you and create this journey with you yeah Carl I'm going to come to you because you sort of shared a similar experience didn't you but just really quickly what Amber shared with me in terms of you know what a weekly monthly quarterly to use that word cadence again but from a leadership standpoint so Amber shared with me that every Monday team uh, Monday kickoff 30-45 minutes the other thing would be pipeline reviews weekly potential bottlenecks can you know Amber provide any coaching uh, for these people one-to-ones monthly and they're very much involved in the agenda you do quarterly reviews and then you do BD one-to-one reviews immediately following a call with you know it was a rough call so just to give you a bit of a a flavour I guess on what some of those things could look like but yeah I, I ask uh, all these guys around you know what what can we do uh, to build high performing teams we all want our teams to be succeeding we want to be doing well so obviously Amber you just said there around a really cool exercise that you did in terms of right let's all gr- agree together let I don't want to just tell you what you should be let, let's obviously all arrive at the same point so Carl why don't you share you know the exercise that you did with your team because you actually shared a similar experience where you know sport thought about your core values as a team as a business and why did that end up being impactful Yeah, so we did some internal training, which was all around high-performing teams. And then we were tasked individually as our teams to go away and discuss, debate, and come up with what were the kind of three values, behaviours, non-negotiables that we all needed to live by. So what we did was um, we all got together and discussed the things that we believed. And I think the point here is all about accountability and trust. And similar to what Amber said, rather than us dictating these are the things actually getting them involved, getting them on the journey means actually they hold each other accountable to them now, hold me accountable to them, you know, everyone. And I think everyone's really bought in. And to give you an idea of the things that we came up with, number one was be relentless and never give in, which I think we stole from Sir Alex Ferguson for the United fans in the room, but that was one. Uh, Two was win and lose together, which I think in the current market conditions is kind of really resonates with everyone at the moment. We're kind of in this together. And then the third one was um, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take what we do very seriously. And we have them on the board and, you know, we hold each other to account to them. So I think the key is getting the team involved on the journey and, and coming up with these things is really important. And just quickly, like, how did you then arrive at those? You know, did you have like a proper brainstorming session? Did you book out half a day? You know, post-it notes out, all that? Like, We went for lunch, had a beer, okay. and uh, came nice. and discussed it. <laughs> um, so no, no nice. post-it notes. But yeah, we took about 90 minutes outside the office. We said, this is the activity you need to all be involved and they were encouraged to share their ideas and then we we didn't leave until we agreed on what the three were yeah cool right so let, let's move this on just to just a, a mixture of a few different things and then for those of you that you know might have some questions specific questions for these guys definitely start thinking about those and i'll come out with a, a microphone but so a couple of things here firstly amber let me come to you so just quickly for context let's say last year billings wise how much of that was all us have you only always done us because i can't remember if it was all or you did some in europe how much have you typically done in the us over the last 12 months yeah it was all oh okay cool all us talk to us about look i've spoken to a lot of people who are really excited about the us opportunity interviewed someone yesterday who did a million quid in a year and in the uk he did the, the biggest amount he did was 260 so he was one of those classic stories that we hear about how many of them are actually true don't know but you know talk to us about your experience amber on you know what has really ended up working in being successful in the us market for people here that might have aspirations to do more work in the us yeah i think i'm somewhat an anomaly as well because i was just kind of thrown into the deep end and i didn't even think about the challenges that working in the us market would present because i joined a a cold desk i didn't even know the meaning of the industry that i work within which is multi-omics like i barely do now to be honest (laughs) um so whilst i've done that the whole time i'm not necessarily sure if i'm the best person for advice but 
I think the hardest thing, understandably, has just been like the hours. It's really, really tough. And I think partly that's what led to the burnout of me leaving. So you need to be ready for that. So like, how did how did you structure it then? Was it you know? <laughs> I started at eight a.m., finished at like. 10 11 p.m at night every day really yeah but again that wasn't enforced by anyone else besides myself and you can definitely do it a lot better i just had this goal in mind and i would do any fucking thing to hit that goal okay and like i was saying to you alex earlier sorry americans are crazy and they're all up at like 3 a.m in the morning ready to go so you might think that the time difference is a negative you cold calling at 3 a.m (laughs) <laughs> I was saying as well, my best client actually that I got from a cold call came from a VP of business development at like a 800 person biochemistry company in the USA. And he was on a Stairmaster at 4am in the morning Let's go, in California. Let's so, go. Yeah. I don't think there's ever a good or bad time to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I just love the US. They're a lot more honest. And there's none like none of this polite bullshit that us Brits like to endeavor on. But yeah, I've loved it. And the salaries are obviously a lot higher. It's very, very difficult regarding different legalities in different states. And every state has a different cultural aspect as well. Like personally, I don't love working in the Midwest. But I like Western East. You've just got to find your your flair. But yeah, I've, I've just kind of winged it and it worked. <laughs> okay. Carl, I know you're early on. Talk to us about, you know, what's worked, what hasn't. Because you're early on on the journey, aren't you? Yeah, we're very early on. And to be honest, it is tough. And it yeah. has been really tough for us. So very much in our infancy. And to be fair, I'd be keen to speak to anyone here that's been on that journey as well. Because we're still very much in learning phase. What's worked for us at the minute is our prospecting methods. Because the people that we sell into, they do the same thing. So although they may not be recruiting, we've been having a lot of positive feedback on the outreach, which has given us guess, some reassuring signs for when the market becomes more buoyant and comes back. So that has been working, our prospecting. The candidate attraction side, from what we've experienced in the last three months, has actually been quite straightforward. Again, that's probably down to the market, but that's not been an issue. The big challenge for us, though, has been just winning clients. And the advice I would give for anyone that's looking to do the US, I would make sure you've got your UK or your core market in order and kind of nailed down first and just make sure you do your due diligence first of all and we thought we had it all planned out i mean we do we've got the market mapped we know what type of businesses we want to sell to and then we realize our domain is .co.uk and you're like oh wow um all the little things that you're just naive to that you don't realize so yeah just make sure you do your due diligence uh, first would be would be my have advice. you approached the hours because i know that's been a bit of a challenge for you as well now how have you structured the hours for the, the US? yeah so we structured the hours the legend that is sam uh, he's in the audience somewhere go on sam uh, i think he's got a bd call shortly actually um, <laughs> the, um, so the hours that we do uh 10 a.m to 8 p.m monday okay. to thursday we have a 3 p.m finish on a friday so sam still benefits from the the 3 p.m finish which we think is really really important because there's a lot of sacrifice doing the US, particularly being the first person to do it. So we still want that element of inclusion and and being involved in the bigger picture. So that's how we're structuring the hours at the moment. It's working okay for now. We may tweak them, but for, you know, these coasts, it's, it's not too bad. Um, and then I guess Alex anything to add because you guys are a bit further along right in the process of having people move there setting up an office you know so I'm assuming there's obviously probably been mistakes and challenges but you've built enough traction to invest in you know feet on the ground people there so talk to us a bit about from your perspective a bit further along principles to you know making it a success in the US so far that you guys have learned. I think it sounds really great, what, what the two guys have already said. I think, yeah, you have to build a business before you move across. I think that's really important. There is a lot of sacrifice involved in that. And like even the guys in the UK at the moment who work the US market, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect for them because you do have to sacrifice certain elements of your, your life, basically, to be able to work the hours. I think then it's about ensuring that you've got the right team to go across. So I think it's all well and good, you know, strategies... I think the people come first before the strategy sometimes, mm. especially in recruitment when it's, you know, professional services, et cetera, et cetera, it's people-led. So I just think you need to make sure you've got a really crack team to send across and you need to send across enough people so that you're kind of managing risk a little bit there because there's the possibility someone's going to move to a new new country and say, you know what, actually this isn't for me. So you need a really, really good team. You need to build business before you go across so you've got an immediate base that you can work from and expand out of and tap into new opportunities when you do go across there. And as I say, I think you need scale and you need the right people. Cool. One or two last questions from me then and then I'll bring the microphone in the audience. So, Carl, let me come to you on uh, this one. 360 or 180 models? What... What do we prefer? 
for us, 180 just suits our market so much better. Um, I think the 360 model does work, can work, even in one of the teams in our business, there's a case that it, it will work as well. But I think for what we do, there's just so much work that goes in. Hence why I said before, we've started the SDR model as well. There's a reason that we place SDRs into jobs that are very highly paid because it is a full-time job. Mm. But somehow as recruiters, we expect people to generate opportunities, book meetings, manage the accounts, agree the contracts, then find the candidates. It's just too much. So I think in some markets it can work. The way our business model is set up, it doesn't. So we have it split. We've got a couple of people that do 360 and it can work in certain markets. But for me and for a lot of businesses, I'm not sure it works personally. Alex, 360, 180. They both, personally, I think they both work. I'm a 180 guy, so that's my background. And we've been playing around with that a little bit, strive to make sure it works for everyone. I think you've got to tailor it to the individual first and foremost. So... There are some people who are suitable to 360 and then there's other people who, who really enjoy the hunting and there's other people who enjoy the farming. So I think you can play to people's strengths. I think strength, strengths-based management is super important. But the truth is, if you look at some of the fastest growing recruitment companies coming out of the UK at the moment, they do 360 models. So although that's not my personal preference, you know, I think you've just got to pick a model that works best based upon your market and then make sure that your systems and structure are really sort of, you know, uh, slick. And what's been your experience? Despite being 360 myself, I'm a 180 advocate, which is, again, hypocritical. Um, (laughs) But having said that, I do think 360 suits a very, very minute amount of people. Like, I just love 360. Like, that's what... I love being able to do tons of different things and learn from different aspects of the process, but it doesn't work for everyone and also I think in agencies if you do have like 50 360 recruiters they have no dependency on you you kind of think okay what as an agency are we actually providing and you know that's why I might have moved on to start my own agency I kind of feel like I can do it all myself Mm. so you have no dependency to the agency so sounds a bit twisted but you do kind of need to think about that as well so final one for me We've spoken a lot today around, you know, winning new business, new clients. So, Carl, let me come back to you. Obviously, I speak to a lot of different companies. And when I find out, you know, the most common way they either maybe get candidates, clients, oftentimes it can be referrals for a lot of companies it isn't. So, you know, I think sometimes, like like you said, Amber, when you achieved those goals, it was always with new logos, new clients, right? Which is crazy. Like, imagine what you could do if these people were giving you more than one opportunity or whatever. So let's just end with it and I'll go into the audience. Carl, what, what's like, you know, your principles of actually building a successful referral program, either for, you know, the client side, the candidate side, because I think that's also a missed opportunity for people to think about what more could they get out of their existing relationships? Yeah, I think client referrals for us have been key and we've, we've had a few new client wins that have come from referrals. Do you need a, a program as such or an incentive for referrals on the client side? I don't think you do. I think the biggest advocate and ambassador for generating referrals is just how good your level of service is. I think if you deliver exceptionally well for your clients, which you should be doing now, then just asking them for referrals. Mm. You know, recently we've asked our existing accounts for referrals. Within five minutes, we've had an email intro into a new business as hiring. But I think a lot of people probably don't ask. So for me, I don't think you need a program or maybe for candidate side. Yeah, I think that would incentivize people to refer. But on the client side, I think the best thing you can do is deliver exceptional service and just ask. Any thoughts, Alex? your journey yeah i think that's really good advice one of the things we did at liquid which massively increased our referrals we we implemented mps so i'm assuming most people know what mps is but it was a brilliant way to change the culture of our business a little bit because we were really like sales focused organizations not organization i think sometimes that had a little bit of an impact upon our culture with regards to having a customer first sort of mindset and a Mm. candidate first mindset so We implemented NPS, which gave us the ability to be able to really effectively measure our customer satisfaction levels, which first and foremost changed the mindset of the people in the business because they knew that that all of a sudden was something that was massively important to us. And I think also it gives you a brilliant way to be able to identify learning and development opportunities, but also there's a sales trigger there. So when you have someone come back and say exceptional service levels, all of a sudden that's the perfect time to be speaking to that individual to maximise the referral opportunities. Mm. So I think as a way of focusing on customer service levels and objectively being able to measure them and drive improvements throughout your business, including in candidate and client generation, I think it's, um, it's a good tip for anyone out there thinking about how they can focus in on that stuff. Amber, should I ask you? Because 
don't know how many referrals you got, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but don't you think, like, as recruiters, we forget how, like, easy it is to just ask for referrals? Like, how many of us are actually asking? Probably not that many. And mm. obviously, this has been something that's top of my mind, starting a new business. And how easy is it to have a lovely call with one of your existing clients? Be like, Jane. I've loved working with you. I love that you're diverse. We've had an amazing, honest, like open communication. Is there anyone else in your network that shares our same values that you could introduce me to? Like that is so much easier than doing 262 dials or whatever I did and being told to fuck off once. Mm. And it, yeah, and then it will equate to clients that do replicate the traits of the clients that you already work with, that you do like, and that do work with mm. the way that, that you work. So I think just don't ask, don't get. And get good at upfront contracts, just to throw in there. Like, that was the thing I always used to do. So if uh, this is our relationship, what do you want from me? You know, what do you think I expect from you? Get a really clear understanding from a client and from a candidate what they want from the relationship. And then I think you can close them on the fact, if I do those things for you, how would you feel about X? How would you feel about recommending me or introducing me into maybe three of three colleagues that you know and respect who are really strong within your industry? It doesn't matter whether they're actively looking at that time or not. All I'm really asking for is the opportunity to be introduced to maybe three of your colleagues who I could, you know, talk to about our services and see whether I could help them further down the line. Then focus in on those customer service levels. Make sure that person's really, really happy. If you can do it objectively, amazing. That's even better. And then I think it's a case of reminding them throughout the process. Are you happy? How are you finding the service levels? Are we living up to the expectations that we set ourselves at the beginning? And then at the end of that process, it's a case of saying, right, now give me the three names. So I think you can lock someone in early on in the process, live up to expectation. And I was quite good at referrals, and that was the typical sort of process I used. Cool. Right. Thanks for listening. Let's look, let's get you involved. I know sometimes we need the first person to have the courage and be brave to ask a question. All right, let's let's kick this off then. Right. Hi, Yush. Long time listener, first time caller. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Look, I'm a business owner and um, I see the struggles that you guys go through trying to motivate staff and everything like that. And uh, I think it's a false economy for everyone to believe right now that it is the good old days of recruitment. It definitely is not. I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, it's harder than it ever has been for you to attract, for you to actually demonstrate your worth to clients, yeah? What I want to know is when we talk about what separates somebody from a good biller to a great biller, what separates that 2%, 5% that are actually you know, flying and still flying through these economic uncertain times, what are the consistent traits that these people show and the delivering day in, day out that can hopefully influence everyone else to maybe take that little bit away from to actually apply to their daily routine to make them that little bit better. Yeah. That. Go for it. I think consistency is important. So again, I think it's about having high standards. It's about knowing what works from a process perspective. It's about understanding best practice within each of those aspects of process. It's about maintaining those standards and having a continual focus on continuous improvement. One thing that worked really well for me was I just gamified everything. So literally, every single day, I kind of played a game where I'd say, if I do X and Y, I wonder if I can get better at this. So this is where I'm at currently. This is what I'm looking to achieve moving forward. Can I move the needle on this particular aspect? So that, for me, I had that like consistent approach to that. And I think that then feeds through to the rest of the team because, you know, especially in downturn markets, recruitment is a pretty brutally horrible job at times. So I think you've got to find wins in what you do on a day to day basis outside of just the success that comes from making a placement and earning commission. So if you can make those wins kind of gamified with regards to getting better at what you do. And again, I'm like a broken record. If you can attach like metrics and numbers to that so that you can actually see quantifiable improvements that for me, like really, I always really bought into that because it meant that I could actually see I was getting better. So it always felt like I was improving. Can I just go a little step deeper? So you're talking about how I could do it, how you could do it. How can everyone else do it? What would you expect in your team for them to progress themselves? How would you encourage them to go that little step further? Because it's all well and good saying, well, this is what I would do. But how would you encourage everyone else to do that? I think you've got to lead by example and then you, you can't over-communicate the important stuff. So be the change you want to 
see in the world. Someone quoted that somewhere. I don't know. I'm a bit worried who I've just quoted there because I don't know. If it's a really bad human being, I apologise. But I think, yeah, that, you, you've got to lead by example and you've got to be what you want to see on your sales floor and then you've just got to communicate that like relentlessly. When you get to the point where people roll their eyes because you're saying the same thing over and over again and they know what you're going to say, you're kind of at the point where actually that stuff's starting to sink in. So I think it's about really effective communication and leading by example. Because if you talk about marginal gains and continuous improvement all the time and show them how that can benefit them, people buy into that stuff. So I, I don't know if that answers the, the question anymore. Nice. Who else we got? Who else has a question for them? Who has the, the courage? Let's definitely do a couple more for sure. I'm actually interested to hear the answer to this from a personal perspective. So I joined the recruitment industry in 2021 where it was so buoyant, like right at the beginning, it was a brilliant, brilliant year. And obviously we're in a downturn market now, but quite a few different occasions, I've heard people saying that the market conditions are actually very similar to pre-COVID times. And it's now a really saturated market where it's really difficult to BD. But you guys have been here pre-COVID. Is it similar? Or are we going to see a market turn and the market's going to become less saturated with recruiters, so we'll see an upturn? Or is it very similar to pre-COVID? I'll chip in on that first. So I'd say for us, we are at pre-COVID levels. Uh, however, I think everything is magnified as 10 times worse because of how good 2021 and the beginning of 2022 was. So, yeah, I think to give some reassurance to everyone, it's not massively dissimilar to probably what it was three years ago just feels a lot worse and I think a lot of the people in the industry now probably didn't know what it used to be like so their comparison is amazing absolutely terrible so yeah hopefully that answers the question I think it, it is pretty similar from what we've noticed in terms of job flow uh, revenue and everything else I think this is personally as well for me why I find this question so hard to answer because I've been tracking, for example, in my own market in biotech, how many vacancies every day are uploaded and there's actually way more for me right now than there were in that boom time. So I'm kind of like playing devil's advocate with myself but one thing that's completely made recruitment for me personally more difficult is AI in our market. For example, there are lots of academic institutions that have AI platforms that basically do the whole recruitment process for them. So think about how AI is also affecting your market and how that might be playing a part in the inability to get as many vacancies. Like I think we're really not focusing on how much this is going to affect our lives as recruiters. And if you're not learning at least how to use AI, you're going to be behind. Definitely got time for one more if anyone wants to ask one more question. You got one? Do you want the microphone or are you, are you good? I can't let me, I'll just get the microphone. No, no, come on. We, yeah, but we're recording it. So we can... Having worked in recruitment for, for a very, very long time. I don't want to hold um, Nearly 15 years and daring to have a uterus and a womb and using it twice. Um, it can be... Yay to the womb. Um, no, it can, be, it can be quite a tricky industry for females to be in. And I felt like quite a lot of my career has been a bit of a fight. So I'm quite interested to ask the panel... What are you doing to support women in your business? And not just women, like diversity, because there's so many people that say it's a tick box exercise and nominate themselves for awards and all that bollocks on LinkedIn. <laughs> but what are you actually doing, like, day to day to genuinely support women? I don't think... <laughs> Love that question, by the way. Sorry. The problem is companies aren't doing anything right that's why I want to start my own bloody female empowered recruitment business because I want to implement all those things I want to have flexible working so women can still be successful billers and have a fucking family and not feel like they're a burden I want women to be able to have fair maternity leave I want women to be able to have role models that they can aspire to be because it's so difficult to envisage yourself in a position where it's just a room of white men whereby you can't even like get your point across in meetings because your voice is biologically so much quieter than theirs like it's draining and unfortunately I don't think right now there's an answer to that question but all we can do as women who care about making these changes is keep advocating and keep telling our stories and keep being open about these shitty experiences that we've had because I think often people think that these things aren't happening but it's a daily fucking struggle sometimes just trying to get your opinion heard so I'm right there with you bitch <laughs> 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 
I can't follow. I can't follow that. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I thought it really scary then, didn't I? <laughs> no, you nailed it. Um, yeah, cool. That is all. Yeah, fair. Well, we're going to end on that note. I think just, just a quick bit of housekeeping before we finish. Bar's open here for another 20 minutes. We'll definitely grab a drink and then we can all go back upstairs to the networking area. But look, Cole, Alex, Amber, thank you. Let's put our hands together for these guys. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're a online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand. The thing that's really cool about what we're doing at Recruitment Mentors is that all of the people that your teams are able to learn from and the people that are delivering the learning content are people that are in role right now. They're billing, they're actively facing the challenges that your teams are, and a lot of the time they're amongst the top performers within their companies, which means your teams are going to be way more confident to learn and spend time on their learning when they know they're learning from people that are doing it right now, have been there and done it. There's nothing worse than feeling like training is not relevant and not current. The best place to find out more about Recruitment Mentors and if we can help you accelerate your team's performance is uh, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn directly and I'd love to connect with you and, and find out if we can help you get more out of your people.